celebrated African-American artist David Hammond says of his work, you have to go back to what we were before you go forward to what we want to be. I am here to remind us what the fuck we came from. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. In 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford came before the Supreme Court of the United States. The case centered around Scott, a man born into slavery, who argued that since he and his family had temporarily been brought into a free territory by their owner, they could no longer legally be held in bondage. Scott sued for his freedom in the Missouri state courts, and over the course of the next decade, the case made its way through the legal system, finally arriving before the highest court in the land. On March 6, 1857, the Supreme Court ruled against Dred Scott in a 7-2 decision. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice Roger Taney determined that Black Americans could not be citizens of the United States and, quote, had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. A little over a century later, Scott Tyler was born in Chicago. Some years later, he would change his name to Dred Scott, spelled D-R-E-A-D, and become a successful artist. Every time you read his name, on a museum label, in the art section of the New York Times, in the program for a fancy artist panel, you are reminded of his namesake, a man who had no rights which white men were bound to respect. Dred Scott the artist wants us to remember that history, a history that is not so far from our present. Much of his work looks to the past in order to imagine a more just future, And perhaps no project embodies that more than his recent slave rebellion reenactment, which he staged in New Orleans over the course of two days in November. I recently sat down with him to talk about plantation weddings, flag burning, and Janelle Monet. Thank you, Dred Scott, so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here. When did you first begin to think about staging a reenactment of a slave rebellion? So um, about six years ago when I was invited to a a residency at the McCall Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, they said it's a project-based residency and, and, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I think I'd like to do a slave rebellion reenactment. And here we are now. (laughs) And were you just thinking any slave rebellion or had you heard about this specific one? I didn't have a particular one in mind and and, I kind of thought... Well, maybe I'll do Nat Turner or maybe a combination of Nat Turner and Haiti and Gabriel Prosser and Denmark Basie or something like that. I, but it was really undefined. And it's on, on the residency that it, you know, in Charlotte uh, at the McCall Center that it kind of became clear about the, the revolt of 1811. Tell me about the revolt of 1811. What happened? Who was involved? And why hadn't I heard about it before you decided to reenact it? Well, you hadn't heard about it probably for the same reason I hadn't heard about it. The, the revolt of 1811 was the largest rebellion of enslaved people in the history of the United States. The history was really buried. The, in 1811, um, New Orleans, the Louisiana Purchase had happened, so the U.S. like owned the territory, but um, it was still largely a French colonial society and. Louisiana was trying to become a state. And so if there are lots of slave revolts in your territory, it sort of makes the the statehood application a little problematic. But the the thing that was interesting was that this rebellion had probably about 500 participants. 
Um, it had a chance of succeeding, and success was not just killing some white people to get revenge before you got killed. It was actually seizing all of Orleans territory and then setting up an African republic in what is modern-day Louisiana and Orleans territory, which was a profound, it was the most radical vision of freedom in the, the, the continental U.S. at the time. I wanted to reenact that one because it's, it would both bring that history to life and allow a lot of people to participate. And it was this vision of people getting free the only way they really could, and that's by overthrowing the system of enslavement. Why did it have a chance where other slave rebellions maybe didn't? Well, um, I'm an artist, not a historian, but I have actually looked at this a bit, and I'll tell you what I think, and that is that it was planned for at least a year, probably more. A lot of the other slave rebellions weren't planned for as long or as deeply. The African population in the region was about 66% of the populace. Now, of that, about half were free people of color, so they were not enslaved. The U.S., as I said, owned the territory, but they were very weak politically and militarily at the time. And so there were these different things that, that were, you know, strategically favorable. One of the leaders, Charles, who was known as Charles DeLand, um, he had relative freedom of movement and could move from plantation to plantation. And through that sort of recruited lieutenants on other plantations. And so there was that sort of possibility of having lots of different plantations involved and and the timing that they did i mean you know was such that many of the the enslavers were in the city of new orleans not paying attention between christmas and mardi gras um the crop is pulled in and the the french were basically partying in the city and so um the enslaved were like look this is a time that's really you know strategically very favorable to us and if i mean again it was i think a um a long shot to succeed but nonetheless it could have succeeded so this had been planned for mm -hmm. more than a year. Yeah. They had a rough window of time. Yeah. And so how did it start? It started on January 8th, 1811. Um, it uh, started with a relative handful of people, probably about 25 people, on a plantation that's known as either the Andrew Plantation or the Woodlands, um, which is in a town called Laplace. Um, and the the plantation, the, the big house is, is still there. That part of Laplace is about 35 to 40 miles from New Orleans, and they were trying to quickly get out of these slave labor camps, which people call plantations, and try to get to the city so they could seize it. They also had an advanced detachment, which was in the city walls. The city was basically the French Quarter at the time, and so there were five forts that surrounded the the, the city, and they were, you know, there, it was a walled city, and so there was this advanced detachment of enslaved people who were trying to seize Fort St. Charles so that there would be more weapons available for when... People got out of the, the slave labor camps and down into the city. And so they marched mm -hmm. on New Orleans. They marched downriver towards New Orleans. And then what happened? Well, they they were stopped at a certain point. I mean, the, the um, word of the rebellion spread. And so the, the both planters militia as well as the U.S. dragoons, which are the precursors to the Marines, um, raised the alarm. And there was a battle. Um, in what is now modern-day Kenner. And so they, they moved back upriver so they could have a better chance of fighting guerrilla warfare tactics. They didn't want to get to a head-to-head -head battle. Um, and then they did get into a head-to-head -head battle by, by some historic accident. Um, and then at that point, they, they were sort of out outgunned and, and somewhat outnumbered, and, and they, the rebellion was put down. And then um, after that, the repression that happened towards the people who rose up or um, even friends and family of people who rose up was, was medieval. I mean, it was just truly brutal repression. 
You mentioned the leader of this rebellion, Charles Delande. He's one of the leaders, yes. In the reenactment, you took on that role. Not exactly. I mean, I we never s- sort of assigned specific character roles. And for this, this was a project that while the title was Slave Rebellion Reenactment, it was a community-engaged performance that was not like, say, a Hollywood movie or a theater piece where there is sort of an exact script that's followed and where people are assigned characters. This was something that was set in modern-day, you know, the river parishes outside of New Orleans and the city itself. So we had very detailed period costume, but we were also marching through, you know, oil refineries and, and grain elevators and and uh, gated communities and trailer parks and big box stores and strip malls. So it was very much about this clash between this you know, sort of army of black people with muskets and machetes and sickles and sabers in French colonial 19th century garment set against the modern. And so in that context, it didn't matter that there was somebody playing Charles or somebody playing Gilbert or Marie Rose or Etienne or Jessamine. It mattered that we principally were a freedom march. That's actually what the project was about more than, and now Charles does this and Andre does that and, and Gustav says this and, and Trapanier says that. But I wasn't playing Charles, even though it's often been reported that that's what I was. I was one of the leaders of the rebellion, but there was nobody that played Charles. I played Dred Scott and, and other people played themselves. Were you happy with your performance as Dred Scott? I think I do me very well. I play me better than anybody. So you mentioned the names of a lot of these people who participated mm-hmm. in the rebellion. How do we know their names? And then how did you pay homage uh, to them at the end of yeah. the performance? Um, well, we know the names based on some of the historic record. There were tribunals that happened that um, were sham trials where, where enslavers were trying to find out who else participated. We've counted, I believe, 196 names of people that that participated or were somehow involved in the revolt, and you know we we did want to honor them as a you know as I said this is a a project that's as much about the, this particular past as it is about the present. But when we um, interrupted the historic timeline, we didn't reenact the the putting down of the rebellion. We basically got to the point where the rebellion was turned around in 1811, and then we got on buses at that point and went into the city itself and stopped at the U.S. Mint, which is where this Fort St. Charles stood, um, and broke into a somewhat spontaneous chant of uh, Ashe, Ashe, Liberté, Liberté, uh, sort of combining Yoruba and Creole, and, and you know, the, uh, Ashe is basically the power to, to change. Um, and and liberté is just a Creole or French word of liberty, freedom. Um, and then we went from there to Congo Square. So uh, enslaved people were allowed to gather typically on Sundays in traditional dress with traditional uh, ceremonies and rhythms and dance and song. And so the, the rhythms that laid the foundation for jazz and then blues and rock and roll and rhythm and blues and hip-hop and bounce and trap and trance and disco and all of what we think of as American music exists because of Congo Square and a couple places like it. So when we got there, um, we sort of broke into a updated rendition of uh, Janelle Monet's Hell You Tell Me About, which is a song that she sort of made as an anthem to re- remember the names of people killed by police. And we 
um, lifted up the names of uh, many of the participants and leaders of, of the 1811 revolt. Regis, I'd like to phone a friend. Hi, Chris. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, will you introduce yourself to people who are listening? Yeah, uh, my name is Chris Giarmo. I am a performer. Uh, I'm uh, currently living in New Orleans, but uh, I'm actually up here in New York performing in David Byrne's American Utopia. And I hear a little bit of chatter in the background. Are you backstage right now or are you out and about? I'm uh, actually at the world famous Waverly Diner down here in the West Village. I am having some chicken soup because it is my day off and I got a little bit of a sore throat. I'm trying to keep these pipes in tip-top shape for my shows. Eight shows a week just don't happen by accident. And for people who haven't seen the show, I mean, you're you're both a dancer and a backup singer um, on stage with David Byrne. Or I, I say it's a dance piece disguised as a rock concert. The Broadway version that we're doing now has a little bit more text than we had on the road. Uh, and so David's really been able to flesh out some of his ideas behind the kind of uh, abstract concept of the show, which have to do with finding connection uh, and expanding your experience outside of your own isolated experience. Mm -hmm. and, and to that end, the songs that you guys perform, I think, are all talking, he talking Heads or David Byrne songs, except for one. Is that right? Yeah, almost all of the songs, all the songs are David Byrne or Talking Head songs, except for uh, this one song that we do, uh, Janelle Monae's Hell You Tom Bout, which is uh, her protest song. And it is basically just a list of names of people, mostly uh, black and brown people, people of color that have been uh, murdered by the police or white supremacists. Uh, and in most cases, uh, the police officers uh, or people that were responsible for the deaths of these folks uh, were uh, acquitted or not charged. And it's basically just shouting their names and encouraging the viewers to say the names with us. Can you describe the format of the song a little bit to me? So it's a, kind of a call and response, right? Can you just give me maybe like a, a few lines of what that sounds like? Yeah. The chorus is something like, hell you talking about. Hell you Tom about, hell you Tom about, uh, which uh, <laughs> I've had to translate this for some audience members that have asked. Hell you Tom about is a kind of vernacular way of saying what the hell are you talking about. Um, so, kind of just asking that question. What what are you, what are you talking about? And then we say names. So uh, the first name in, in New York is Eric Garner. So it's Eric Garner. Say his name. Eric Garner. Say his name. Eric Garner, say his name. Eric Garner, won't you say his name? I think of it as a very powerful yet very minimal ask for an audience. Um, we're not asking uh, anyone to kind of vote for someone uh, or to choose a political party or to even take a position against the cops. <laughs> uh, we're actually just saying, uh, can you just say this name? Say the name. That's all we're saying. Uh, David Brown mentions in the show that he was at the Women's March and he saw Janelle Monae perform the song and that it impacted him really deeply. Um, 
And then he goes on to talk about approaching her personally to ask if he can perform this song. Will you tell me a little bit about that exchange that he had with her? He asked if it was okay. Um, he's, you know, was like, I, and the way he says in the show, he's like, I don't, I was worried if, uh, how she would feel about a, a, a white man of a certain age singing this song. Uh, but her response was literally, I think he quotes it in the show, but was uh it's this song is is humanity's song it's not my song it's everyone's song um and you know his audience is generally uh, they kind of look like him a little bit older definitely a little white a lot white and uh you know he is aware that sometimes that demographic really only listens to other people that look like him and so that if he is able to take a song that none of these people would ever willingly go and seek out. He's really, uh, he's, he's aware of that and really interested in that. Um, it's like a, it's just like a basic kind of allyship doing the work to help other people of privilege understand what that privilege means and how it affects marginalized communities without tasking those communities to do the educating themselves. What does it feel like for you performing this song night after night where you are saying the names of people who have been victims of police brutality? Um, I really believe in the power of like the voice and there is something incredible. I mean, it's a testament to the protest song saying the words does something to you that is different from just listening to it, just ingesting it for my entire life and for most you know, white people's lives, we've had the privilege of ignoring these things. That's maybe one of our greatest privileges as white people is to ignore race completely and racism therefore. Uh, and so you can't, if you say the name, you can't, uh, you can't unsay what you've just said. And it really just forces accountability. Speaking of people who have been killed by police, it was reported that Oscar Grant's aunt and uncle mm-hmm. participated. Yeah. Did you specifically reach out to families of victims of police violence? No. I, I mean, one of the most beautiful things of this reenactment is the range of people who found that this was important to be part of. Oscar Grant, who was killed by the uh, Bay Area Rapid Transit Police, shot while handcuffed lying face down on January 1st, 2009. Um, and became the subject of Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station. When I heard that, that Uncle Bobby was, was coming, it was just so touching. I actually don't know how they found out about it. I mean, word was spreading. I mean, they've become real sort of fighters for justice, not just for Oscar Grant, but for, for you know, victims of police brutality, but also you know, to end oppression. And um, that this mattered enough for them to participate, it was just very moving for me. But people, you know, that whether they were local community leaders or whether it was people who were fighting against the toxic corporations that are poisoning people in Cancer Alley through which we marched, whether it was, um, you know, people who were descendants of people who, you know, Sammy Rose, great-great-grandmother was a a fighter in in the 1811 revolt and she participated and she drove um, nine hours each way. There were, you know, people who recently were freed from prison and, and, you know, all sorts of people that, that for whom this really, really mattered. You mentioned Cancer Alley. Mm-hmm. Tell me what the landscape, this 26-mile <laughs> landscape yeah. that you walked, what did it look like in 1811, and what does it look like today? Well, as far as today, have you ever been to hell? That's what it looks and smells like. Um, it now, So in 1811, 
um, there were all these slave labor camps that were, were growing sugar and people were being worked to death in them. They, your, your life expectancy if you got enslaved on a sugar plantation was seven years. And so it was, you know, a, a landscape of, of an agricultural crop and death. 25% of the sugar in the world was grown in Louisiana um, in the early 1800s. That commodity got replaced by oil in the 1920s. And they literally put down these oil refineries on tops of the graves of enslaved people that were enslaved at these you know, slave labor camps. And in addition to the petrochemical um, industries that have shown up there, there are other toxic uh, industries that have sort of are lining that part of the Mississippi. Um, and it has one of the, or has the highest incidence of cancer in the United States. And it, it's loud, it burns your throat. Um, you know, we stayed overnight in in that region, and you have a, have a headache just from whatever chemicals are in in the air. And then, you know, in slightly beyond these petrochemical plants, there's a, a plant called Denka, which produces neoprene. But one of the byproducts of neoprene is chloroprene, which is a known carcinogen. It's the only place in the United States that produces neoprene. Um, but this, you know, now Japanese-run company is poisoning poor black people. It's actually pretty simple. I mean, we can talk fancy terms or name it Cancer Alley or Death Alley, but it is a region of the country where it is highly, highly, highly toxic and is literally snuffing out the life of lots of people and kids you know, are in playgrounds next to oil refineries, which is just crazy. It sounds like for centuries this region has been a site of death mm -hmm. of black people yeah. um, in the name of making money. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in all fairness, they kill some white people now, too. I mean, there are a lot of people in the town of Norco are white, and, and these there are all these little towns that are really segregated, so there's a black section and a white section. And, you know, the the, the you know poison gas doesn't doesn't discriminate. It's an right. equal opportunity. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Equality for all. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you get involved or interested in reenactments as a form of artistic, as a form of your artistic practice. Is this the first time that you've done a, a reenactment it's, of this? I would say type? it's the first and perhaps only time. I mean, I'm, I'm not the reenactment artist. I'm an artist who works in a lot of different media. And I try and use the work to talk about big questions confronting humanity. Most of my work appears in galleries and museums, but I do a lot of performance and a lot of work in public as well and a lot of community engaged work. And um, this became a vehicle to talk about how social change happens, to talk about freedom and emancipation, to talk about resistance, to talk about systemic racism and and how the past of enslavement sets the stage for modern day America, but but not just the, the horrors of, of slavery, but the fact that in 1811, the most radical ideas of freedom and, and, and emancipation and liberation were in the heads of enslaved people. And so if you actually want to study how people get free, don't look at Thomas Jefferson or, or George Washington. You know, They wrote the US Constitution, but the freedom in that document, I mean, first of all, it was a document written by enslavers and friends of enslavers to define the legal and political structure of a society whose economic foundation is slavery. And the, the freedom in that document is predicated on owning human beings. And so if you want to study freedom you know, in the early late 1700s or early 1800s, study people who were trying to end the system of slavery. And, and doing a reenactment was a way to, to talk about it and do that. I mean, I did look at both fine artists who were using reenactment. I looked at Jeremy Deller's Battle of Ogrieve. I looked at how in, in the, the early 19, well, 1920s, um, the Soviet Union, they had these spectacles, including the reenactment of the storming of the Winter Palace that was the, the basically the opening salvo of the Russian Revolution. 
but that's not I'm not like suddenly going to use reenactment as a form to the best of my knowledge in the future. Did you attend any Civil War reenactments or any reenactments that yeah. have a more historical focus? Yeah. I went to the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, which was crazy. There were like 10,000 reenactors, which is that's a lot of people. And they, these are all, you know, history buffs in some way. I mean, Civil War reenactment is largely a Southern tradition. And so it's in most of the people that do it think the South are the good guys. And, um, and they kind of think if they do just one more reenactment that the good guys will win. And so they get the main question of the Civil War wrong, um, even though they get the troop movements and the costumes right. And it is kind of amazing to see how dedicated they are about this. But, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm sorry, the people fighting to uphold enslavement, those weren't the good guys. <laughs> and, right. and and so like in the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, there were 10,000 people. I saw two black people the entire time. Um, one in with the Confederate troops and one with the federal troops. And then the federal troops, it was somebody that was a camp follower. Um, and the Confederate troops, it was basically a, a servant, an enslaved person. And the thing is, even though in 1863, the, the U.S. government did not allow black people to fight in the, the federal troops, um, there would have been a ton of black people that would have been on the, the federal side moving cannons back then. If you did that, you did that by mule. The mules were controlled by Teamsters. And it was a good job that a lot of black people had. On the southern side, the Confederate side, they were not going to go to war without the people they enslaved. It's, I mean, it's just not going to happen. And so here's this reenactment that pretends to be like really, really accurate. But they, you know, again, they get the main question wrong. And as a, a visual artist, I'm like, well, actually, I'm not trying to remove the present. I'm trying to actually say, no, this is a piece that commingles in time, both in, in 1811, but also in uh, 2019. We paid a lot of attention to detail of what, what the, the costumes and the weapons would be like, the songs that might have been sung, the flags that might have been carried. But it wasn't for us just about costumes or troop movements. It was actually about how people get free. Yeah, the selective fidelity of, I think, Civil War reenactors in particular yeah. is pretty breathtaking, where yeah. it's like, these brass buttons are original brass buttons. Yeah. But, oh, if you're a person of color or a woman and you want to participate, yeah. like, yeah. well, that, you know, that's not historically accurate. Yeah. And also, let's not really spend too much time thinking about why the Civil War was fought. That's yeah. not why yeah. we're here. I was poking around on YouTube looking at videos of Civil War reenactments, like, what do you do on Saturday nights? And I came across this one. It's shot in a forest, and it shows a battalion of 20 or so men, a ragtag group in Confederate uniform. Many of them are unshaven, some of them wear tiny wire spectacles that are frankly chic. They form two lines and stand at attention, their muskets or rifles or whatever by their side, and then at a command from their captain, they set off marching. And as they walk, they start singing a classic Confederate marching song. That song is in Russian because this video is from Russia. It takes place in a Russian forest, and these dudes reenacting the American Civil War are Russian. I could not get over this, and then I started reading the comments. Great job! Best regards from Polish ACW reenactors! Smiley face emoji. 
It's a great little film you have made there, smiley face emoji. I would like to get in touch with your group. I am the leader of a group of Civil War reenactors in Denmark. What? Turns out this is a whole thing. With a little searching, you can find videos of American Civil War reenactments in Germany, the Czech Republic, England, and Sweden. There's a Polish video that shows one dude in Union Blues making stew over a campfire, and the caption reads, Goulash a la Yankee. What possesses these Europeans to become so invested in a 19th century American military conflict that they spend their weekends shooting at each other wearing silly hats? It's a question that we all ask ourselves and none of us have got the answer. That's Ray Thompson, a British Civil War reenactor. He and a bunch of his compatriots were interviewed by the American photographer Jay Sewell. I grew up watching westerns on the television with my granddad and, and all that sort of thing. And you see your John Waynes and, and your um, James Stewart in Shenandoah and things like this. And, and the Civil War was always part of every western that we watched. And it, I think it just burns into your psyche. But I've always been mad on it since I was about six years of age. This seems to be a recurring theme among European Civil War reenactors. My entry into the Civil War reenactment has sprung from my interest in history and black powder shooting, and also from my childhood fascination with the Old West, cowboys and Indians and such. That is Peter Hagen, president of the Blue and Gray American Civil War reenactors of Denmark. He offered to answer some of my many questions about his hobby, and he ended up writing out his answers and reading them to me for, as he put it, factual and linguistic preparation sake, which is funny because his English is better than mine. I asked him, besides the John Wayne stuff, what the appeal was. Since I am also a lifelong member of the Danish Home Guard, something like your National Guard, and thus a soldier myself, I'm curious to experience a real day in the life of my 19th century counterpart by donning the role, attire, and environment of one of my brothers-in-arms of that period and acting it out as far as possible without contracting dysentery, being shot, or having my limbs amputated, of course. Another thing that I noticed in a lot of these videos is that the Confederates are very popular. Like, obviously you need both sides to do a battle reenactment, but it seems like a lot of Europeans want to be on the Confederate side. What's up with that, Peter? Personal ideologies and convictions do not play a significant role in European reenactment. We are, after all, conveniently distant from both succession issues and taxation issues and slavery issues and so forth. My reasons for choosing a Dixie persona are many, but primarily it was the easiest one to kid up for, since Confederate volunteers in the early stages of the war were somewhat of a motley and not so uniform crowd, as opposed to the neatly dressed Yankee soldiers. Finally, I asked Peter about the white supremacist elephant in the room. In the US, if you're big on Confederate culture, we know what that means. Does this come up in Denmark? In Denmark, we make no attempt at glorifying white culture through reenactment. Our agenda is neither an ideological nor a political one. Most reenactors in Denmark and Scandinavia are liberal humanistic nerds and history buffs first, southern rebel and northern abolitionist seconds. We're just in it for the sheer nerdery of it all, or the campfire camaraderie, or for the innocent childish fun of shooting off big cannons, just like most of our American comrades, I'll wager. I'll take Peter at his word, but I can't help but think that if I were to take an interest in reenacting the history of another country, the side that I chose would say a lot about me. Like if I were reenacting the fall of France in World War II, I'm never gonna be a Nazi. And while Peter did say that ideology wasn't a big factor in which side people choose to be on, he also mentioned that some Europeans, 
perhaps ones who are brexiting through the gift shop, might sympathize with the cause of states' rights. And that's really interesting to think about in the context of the rise of nationalism in Europe and the threat that it poses to the EU. Maybe those Russian rebs in the forest are just playing dress up. Or maybe not. Attention, company! To our noble confederacy, hip hip! Hooray! 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 Can you tell me about maybe one of the artists you mentioned who specializes in reenactment, um, who you really pulled inspiration well, from? Jeremy Deller's Battle of Orgreave is sort of the touchdown piece if you're if you're doing reenactment as fine art. But Jeremy's piece, which was a, a reenactment of a battle between striking miners and Margaret Thatcher's uh, police uh, that happened, I believe, in 1980, and he did the reenactment in 2000 or thereabouts, so it was just like 20 years later. Labor unions and skilled labor were just thrown out of work and, and where the police you know, beat people pretty mercilessly, and it was a real attempt to break the unions. And So Jeremy did this Battle of Orgreave as a reenactment, and, and he actually worked with a lot of the people that participated, and sometimes even they played different sides. I mean, so some people were you know, cops actually played minors and some people minors played cops. And, um, and it, you know, it was definitely done in a fine art space and, and it was weird in some ways and people didn't quite understand what it was until it happened. And then people thought, this is amazing. You know, I, I think that, you know, Jeremy opened up a pathway for other artists to, to kind of walk into and, and, and use that as a form. Especially in the South, there is such an emphasis placed on history, our, our legacy as Southerners, right? And about like reenactments, whether it's Civil War reenactment or, you know, plantations where you can go and bring the kids or have your wedding there. But, you know, who's telling the story, right? Who's telling the history? These plantations, these are sites of genocide. I mean, nobody would have their wedding at Auschwitz. Nobody would have a and b at Bergen-Belsen. But that's what... The story is told if you go to Destrehan Plantation or Evergreen Plantation or Oak Alley Plantation. They tell a completely upside-down white supremacist view of history. And and these plantations are, you know, they're run as they're they're run as for-profit institutions. They're not overseen by scholars. They are getting people to think, oh, what a beautiful time this was. And they rarely mention slavery. I mean, you know, a couple of these plantations have tried to add in a little bit of like, oh, well, here were two important enslaved people on our plantation, or here's uh, something about the 1811 revolt. It's like, you can't do that. That You, you actually need to you know, take out all the furniture, take out all the, all the wallpaper, focus on the slave cabins, and get historians to actually tell the history. You know, I hope that in some small way, this project has contributed to people saying, we have to stop all of these plantations from operating the way they are. But there's a whole industry behind it, and I think that's unlikely to happen anytime in the near future. But it is, they're just you know, morally bankrupt and repugnant, um, and it is actually actively promoting on a daily basis white supremacy, and they're just as dangerous, if not more so, than, than these monuments that you know, people have rightly been saying we need to tear these things down. Right, and, uh, and the fact that a lot of these plantations are state-funded, are government-funded, mm -hmm. that kids, public school kids, yeah. have to go Every on year. field trips. Yeah. I mean, yeah. can you imagine being like a young African-American school child and having to listen to 
this history. Yeah, well, I don't have to. I mean, I've had several people tell me how they got taken. It was an annual event. They get year after year after year to these various plantations. And, you know, because the white supremacy is so deep and so entrenched that this is like, you know, where it really is a tourist industry. But, you know, there's no parent that should allow their kids to be, you know, force-fed this horrible racist view of history. While a lot of plantations still peddle nostalgia for genteel, white southern bales, sipping lemonade on the veranda and all that bullshit, change is coming. Just last week, Pinterest and The Knot and a few other websites agreed to remove all plantation wedding content from their sites, under pressure from the civil rights organization Color of Change. And some plantations are staying open as tourist attractions, but explicitly changing their mission, like the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, which focuses exclusively on the lives of enslaved people. If you're going to charge people to visit the forced labor camps where millions of people were tortured and worked to death, a focus on that shameful history seems appropriate. But not everyone feels that way. Here's a smattering of reviews from Yelp and TripAdvisor for the Whitney Plantation and other slave plantations that attempt to talk about, you know, slavery. The Visitor's Center, grounds and historic buildings are beautiful and well-maintained. Our problems with the 45-minute tour, the guide, Paul, gave a presentation that was mostly focused on the plight of the enslaved. The brief mentions of the former owners were defamatory. There were numerous politically charged comments that were derogatory to the South. While we regret the atrocities of slavery, we feel the tour was more of a scolding towards the Old South than anything. If this is your thing, enjoy. If you're looking to visit a traditional plantation, look elsewhere. Never have I come to a place more determined to spread race hatred than Whitney, whose guides try to foment historical resentment among the mostly black patrons of the tour. It is perhaps ironic that the Whitney was for many years just a working plantation of French and German families, with some slaves, until the Yankee terrorists burned out most of the other local farms and left this one standing. Now it is a dishonor, especially to the memory of the family slaves, relatives, and retainers that survived Reconstruction. My husband and I were extremely disappointed in this tour. We didn't come to hear a lecture on how the white people treated slaves. We came to get this history of a southern plantation and get a tour of the house and grounds. I am by far not a racist or against all Americans having equal rights, but this was my vacation, and now we are crossing all plantation tours off our list. It was not what we expected. I'll go back to Louisiana and see some real plantations that are just so much more enjoyable to tour. Would not recommend. Tour was all about how hard it was for the slaves and how hard done by they were. They forgot how hard it was for most poor people in those days anywhere in the world. Go somewhere different if you want to experience a plantation tour. Very racist. If you're white, don't go. I want to read a quote that Dorothy Ray, mm-hmm. the project Dorothy's coordinator. Great. Yeah, she's one of the coordinators. She's fantastic. Uh, this is something that she said in the New York Times. You get to camp out with black people and walk for miles with nothing but black people. And it's not because somebody died. It's like we always get together for tragedy, but never just for celebration. Yeah. yeah. Did it feel like a celebration? It's such a somber event. But while you were 
while you were reenacting it, did it feel like a celebration? It, it, I mean, it wasn't a somber event. That's the thing. This is one of the best things that's happened in the, the land that is now the United States. People rising up to overthrow enslavement. That's a great thing. That's something that should be celebrated. And that was the spirit with which people approached it. This is not a project about slavery. This is a project about freedom fighters, about re- rebels, about rebellion. And I mean, these fierce young women came to the fore and were, you know, ashe, ashe, liberté, liberté. There was, you know, people bounding, bounding on their uh, machetes with rocks and chanting, and and it was the most beautiful space I've ever been in. It was amazing, and it was truly celebratory, as it should have been. It's not somber to to fight for freedom. It is a joyous thing to fight for freedom, and and for decades now, people have been told that that freedom fighters are kind of a curse word that violence is bad. I mean, progressive people in particular, I mean, a lot of right-wing reactionary violence is happening now. You get these fools and the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or whatever. But for progressive people, I mean, collective mass armed uprisings, that's been knocked out of people's understanding. And that's unfortunate. The, The project isn't necessarily positing a solution for how people solve things today. But my God, I mean, even the Civil War, that was bloody violent. That's what it took to end slavery. And, you know, people in 1811 rising up to overthrow a system of enslavement, that was great. They couldn't like form a super PAC and say, hey, let's see if we can get whipped only Monday through Friday. That's absurd. It was totally righteous for people who were being worked to death to rise up and try and overthrow the system of enslavement. That is something that should be celebrated. And people need to have the courage that those people had and the conviction and integrity they had. Now, again, it's up to people to decide what that means in the present. But I do think that at various points in history, armed uprisings have actually led to to radical change that was really deeply in the interest of humanity in those places. Would you punch a Nazi? Oh, many Nazis should be punched. <laughs> I, I watched Richard Spencer getting his lights knocked out over and over again. Punching Nazis is a good thing. So much of your work, and in fact, your very name, is tied to history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you start out by saying, I'm not a historian, I'm not a historian, I'm no. an artist. But you seem, I mean, history holds you in its thrall, Yeah. clearly. Why is it so important for you to examine history as a way of looking forward? I tell people a lot of time, my work looks at how the past sets the stage for the present, but also how it exists in the present in new form. Chattel enslavement principally doesn't exist, at least in the U.S. now. And yet the social relations between the descendants of enslavers and the descendants of enslaved are largely the same. You don't get a situation where a cop in Fort Worth, Texas walks up on a on a welfare call into somebody's apartment and murders her through her window two seconds after seeing her without slavery. Um, and so there is a real continuation between that past and our present. And it's important to both know know the past because it's just it's interesting, but it's it actually I use it in a way to to talk about where the world is now and where it can go. As somebody who's making artwork, I can deploy that history in a variety of ways, in ways that a historian might not actually have the freedom to do. And so I think I might be able to get at some truths that historians can't, by the nature and constraint of the work that they do, where they actually, if they're good, have to be faithful to the history. And where I could say, well, I can change something if I want to. I don't know too many artists whose artwork has reached the Supreme Court and established a legal precedent. What is the proper way to display U.S. flag was an artwork that I made in 1988, and it became the center of national controversy. 
1989. It's an installation for audience participation that had a photo montage on the wall that had text that read, what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag? There was also two photographs. One was a photograph of South Korean students burning American flags, holding signs that said, Yankee, go home, son of a bitch. And the other was a, a photograph of, um, of uh, flag-draped coffins coming back from Vietnam in a troop transport. And then there was a shelf on the wall that had books that were originally blank that people could write responses to that question below that. On the floor was a three-by-five-foot flag that people had the option of standing on. So it wasn't just what I thought about the flag, but it was what people commented about the flag and, and whatever they wanted to write. And hundreds and ultimately thousands of people did, including when it was first, well, the second display at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I was an undergraduate student at the time. It was ultimately called Disgraceful by George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush One, which I thought was a tremendous honor. And it was outlawed by Congress through some twists and turns. And there was a legal precedent that was established in Texas v. Johnson that flag burning was protected speech. So Congress passed a law to overturn that Supreme Court decision that included some wording that specifically was designed to outlaw what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag. And they cited it in, in passing the law on the floor of Congress. And then so I and Joey Johnson and a revolutionary artist named Sean Eichmann and a Vietnam veteran named Dave Blaylock burned flags on the steps of the Capitol a couple days after the law went into effect. I and many others actually burned flags all around the country that literally the second the law went into effect, but they didn't arrest anybody. And so we went to the Capitol to say that we, this law needs to be defied. And that went to the Supreme Court. To me, that was a, a tr real admission of the power of art. Because here is a country with the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, cops, 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 and more cops. And yet they are so worried that an artwork by a 24-year-old undergraduate art student in a small Midwestern school would be seen and it might actually make people question, well, what's so important about you and your flag? You've got all this military might, yet you need us to blindly follow you. And if we don't, we might, that's problematic. So you have to ban the, those ideas. You know, to have Congress going to the extraordinary measure of outlawing this, this just showed how important art could be and how much it could matter. Dred Scott, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, it would really help us if you would subscribe, if you would like the show wherever you get your podcasts, if you would tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your mom, tell your enemy's mom, whatever. We appreciate it all. Thanks so much. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.